everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And I am Ian Rowe, also a senior fellow at AEI. And today we are excited to be joined by our colleague, Robert Cherry. He is an adjunct fellow uh, at the American Enterprise Institute, and he is the author of a new book about the state of the Black family. Welcome, Robert. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. So we wanted to just start with kind of uh, an, uh, your understanding uh, of where things stand. And you're an economist. Um, so what what possessed you to start looking at the state of the Black family? Is it just a book about economics or or what do you attribute the, the problems in the Black family to? Well, I actually started wanting to write a book about what I think are two problems that are that liberals have not only no solutions, but often what they try makes things worse. One is the gun violence that uh, has become, it seems, an everyday uh, occurrence in uh, many black neighborhoods, uh, spreading now to other places as well in the city. Uh, and secondly, the problems that are documented for 10-year-old Black kids in terms of their educational uh, problems, uh, being not at grade level 75%, not at grade level in math, uh, almost similarly in English, and uh, behavioral things that uh, are accelerated by the lack of academic success. And that's what I was focused on in trying to look at policies. But ultimately, one of the things that drives to a reasonable degree these issues is the uh, Black family and the dynamics within house Black households. So it has the title uh, the state of the black family, but the subtitle is what really drove me to this, and that was 60 years of tragedies and failures and new initiatives that offer hope. Hmm. So so is the is the implication that we're, I guess you're never beyond completely policy, but is the implication that the family now plays a much bigger role in addressing these issues that you're I talking think about? It, it certainly plays an important role in these issues. There's, you know, a lot that goes on that may drive the environment that kids grow up in, neighborhood effects, uh, socializing, that may not be one-to-one uh, -one with the family, but the family certainly plays a role in allowing certain kind of dynamics to occur, certain problems to fester. And so one has to deal with the family if really one wants to begin to, in a substantial way, move forward, uh, particularly around these two issues of gun violence, violence and poor performance of 10-year-olds. Uh, and and why did you start? So you say sixty years of failure. So 
What was the state of the black family 60 years ago? Well, as I think you know in Naomi, uh, if we would look at uh, the 1950s and early 1960s, marriage rates among blacks was not too different, if different at all, from white marriage rates. Uh, yes, uh, kids born out of wedlock were somewhat higher, but again, the marriage rates were pretty, uh, almost exactly the same. And that's what changed, particularly in the next 20 years, in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, we can go into that, but it really doesn't matter much. We're, we have to deal with what's going on now and what can be done to respond to the vulnerability that is uh, much more prevalent in the black community than the white community. So what what specifically do you mean of, are, is the vulnerability that results from the marriage rates being lower? I think what happens is you have kids that are raised in, uh, in situations where families are churning. The clearest example is the multi-partner fertility, where Black women sequentially enter into relationships, give birth to a child, uh, and then go into another relationship and give birth to other ch other children. And what happens in that kind of churning is that kids could get lost, particularly boys from the first relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, and it also takes up a lot of energy for these women uh, to kind of navigate these these changing relationships and uh, with work and with, uh, it makes motherhood uh, a very complicated undertaking and something that we have to help them navigate. Mm -hmm. I think uh, the ethnographer, uh, Kathy Eden, calls that the father go around. Yes, yes. So, I mean, Robert, you know, one thing I think it's always careful for us to do, I mean, you've written a book specifically about the Black family. Just for a moment, talk about those same trends over this. And, and I do, we do want to focus on the Black family, but I think it's worth always not pathologizing these issues as if they don't exist in other uh, parts of American society. So just talk a little bit about how some of these issues are now becoming more universal, and then we can come back to... I think what, certainly this issue of marriage uh, has impacted substantially on white communities, particularly white working class. I think what drives both and is what happens to men and the lack of giving pathways for working class men other than this uh, ideal of four-year college for all mm -hmm. that's been devastating for many young black men and increasingly young white men not really taking seriously providing pathways to the middle class absent academic programs but I think there's still a difference, important difference between the black and white community. One is this kind of multi-partner fertility 
is not nearly as prevalent in the white community. So you don't have this family churning to the same degree. And also you don't have the community violence. And that violence affects young kids, not simply because, you know, uh, 17-year-olds and 16-year-olds get involved with guns. But if you take eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds, living in communities where they hear gunshots, they know somebody who's been shot, mm -hmm. that has substantial traumatizing effects on young kids. And you don't quite have, you don't have it to any anywhere the degree in the white community. You know, maybe they're just sitting at home playing video games and getting high and getting opiates. Uh, but you don't have that kind of dynamics in these failing white communities. So it's really the dangerous combination of these two things uh, that you feel has exploded in these communities and is uh, having a terrible impact on young people. Um, I wanted to turn, you know, to some of the, the policies. Um, it's sort of widely known what are the policies that have failed and have resulted in this situation. But, uh, you know, you have suggestions for what we should do to fix this. Um, so can you talk about some of the policies in the book uh, that you would advocate? Well, there's two, in these two issues, there's policy sort of for each. One is this issue of what are you going to do to enable more 10-year-old black kids to be on grade level. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to get in the family. The, the liberal view was, well, we'll have pre-K, universal pre-K, and we'll substitute for the family. It hasn't been a failure, but it hasn't worked either. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it's a failure that it hasn't substituted for the family. So as uh, Ian quickly mentioned, there's something called visiting nursing programs. Uh, uh, young mothers, uh, when they're pregnant, uh, they're uh, linked up with a visiting nurse who helps them through the latter stages of their pregnancy and helps them with their kids up to two and three uh, years old. It's not revolutionary. I mean, Mayor de Blasio in New York uh, supported it. Now, we didn't really support it with a lot of money or anything, but he certainly claimed he supported it. Uh, and these mothers are helped not simply because it gives them a foundation of child rearing, but it also helps them with their own life decisions. I mean, these are young mothers, maybe not 17 and 18 like they were two decades ago, but they're still 20, 21, still pretty young and it helps them. And uh, then there's something called parents as teacher coming into the home, helping them make uh, develop this, their children's school readiness and the kind of environment that will help them through their early grades. Mm -hmm. uh, and charter schools have been very good at prodding parents to be the kind of parents they want to be. Yeah. Uh, no, so I, that... I, yeah, I think I think when I, as my the audience knows, I run charter schools, and when I was running an elementary, a network with elementary schools, we actually started a partnership with the parent-child home program, 
where the younger siblings of our current students, you know, as young as 18 months old, there was a two-year home visiting partnership where we had early, early literacy specialists visit the home two times per week, 30 minutes per visit, and each week the, the, the parent, caregiver, and the child, the toddler, would receive a new book, uh, 30 minutes before the visit, the, the, the literacy specialist would call to say, turn off all any media, any devices, so they could really focus. And so over the course of two years, you know, from 18 months now, almost, you know, almost close to four years before they entered pre-K, you had uh, someone really helping to build the capacity of the caregiver at home. So it was a, it was a really exactly. powerful, so I'm, I'm a big fan uh, of the, this kind of initiative that the, you know, the, the constraint as always is that, you know, we'll never have enough, you know, care, you know, and enough literacy specialists to uh, fill the need. So it's, it's an important component. Um, but what do you think, how do we actually create a situation where there are less kids black or otherwise being born into these vulnerable kinds of situations? Well, look, uh, I certainly agree with your emphasis on the success sequence, that it's important for teenagers to be impressed with the effectiveness of this strategy for life. And Certainly, the more young men and women uh, who embrace this kind of success sequence, the less there's going to be the need because, uh, you know, a, a stable two-parent family provides a lot of what uh, these aides and others can do. Uh but I, I must say, I even if we changed from, let's say, being 70% children born to unwed mothers, even if we changed it to 50%, which is, would be tremendous, even if we did that, there's still these 50%. That are born. So I think no matter what we do, I have things in the book about, and other people have talked about, uh, uh, Scott Winston and others about Winship, uh, of getting rid of the marriage penalty that young um, unwed mothers face. I mean, there are things that we can do to try to increase the marriage rate kids born into two-parent families but there's still gonna be a lot of kids that aren't and so we're we have to take seriously these kind of household interventions and make it much more nationally acceptable that we should be investing in that and not in these uh substitutes like pre-k uh, which have limited effects. Uh, but then it's the issue of what we do with, again, we'll 
hopefully have many more 10-year-olds who are on grade level are not getting discouraged, falling in with a socialized group that leads to behavioral problems and so on. Uh, but we're still going to have a quite reasonable number of kids who are in the 10th grade, and it's quite clear they are not academic material, and they're not going to easily become academic. And we have to have a serious approach to vocationalism, and it has to accept that for a modest number, it's starting out with fairly low-level certificate programs. That sure, there's now much more of an interest in occupational programs, but they often are ones that are linked to AA, AAS programs at the community college. New York City is going to be in partnership with programs over the next couple of years. But those are for students who are pretty close to being able to handle academic material. There's going to be a good number who aren't. And they have to have a pathway. And I think stackable certificate programs are the way to go. And they've been very successful in South Carolina, Louisiana, and other places. And it's so not right. Yeah. Robert, so what is it? What does that mean? A stackable certificate? So what kind of certification would they be getting in what kind of field? That well, there's a range of fields associated with a college. There are health, there's uh, leisure industry certificates. The Manufacturing Institute has a set of them, but they they start off, you know, they could be uh 10-week, three-month programs that get you the first certificate, that's for an entry-level job in mm -hmm. one of these industries. But they then are stackable where you get further skills, and you're able to rise in these industries based on the, the advance you make in these stackable certificates. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it means you're not, you're starting out at 18, 20 bucks an hour in some certificate. But, you know, if you do a couple of them, you're working for four or five years, you can get into middle class wages of 40, 50,000, you know, maybe a bit more a year. Uh, you know, it's not what you and I may have for our children. But these are kids who, absent this kind of pathway, they're going to be on the street getting into nothing good. And, uh, you know, so I, I feel defensive about it because it's not as if they're becoming carpenters or electricians or many of the apprenticeships where you immediately start out at 40000 50000 Right. But... You got to take people where they are. And these are kids who've never had any success in the school system. Right. And it gives them a step up and they can move forward. I saw that in welfare reform, welfare to work, that many of the women were in fairly low level 
kinds of educational programs. And we see how effective over the last couple of decades, black women have been in moving up uh, the ladder. Mm -hmm. And I think more people can do that. So Robert, all of this makes sense. Who in the world would be against these ideas? Well, I think who's against it are people who are unwilling to settle for this kind of, you start at a 18, 20 bucks an hour, after five or so years, you're up to 40,000, maybe then you get up to 60,000. And there's no guarantee, right? I mean, they could fall by the wayside. Who's against that are people who have aspirations that say everyone in this in this current generation should be able to have comfortable middle class lives. We have to give them that opportunity. And taking away four-year college options takes away that opportunity from them. That this is incrementalism at its worst. So if you know, they just don't accept this kind of incrementalism because it, if for them it puts off for another generation or more equity. Black Americans being at equal places. And uh, so that's who's against it. And also I think politicians are uncomfortable with it because they can't they can announce a success that you got 50 kids into a beginning certificate program. You know, if you get 50 people into a, an apprenticeship program that's going to make 50,000, get them into college, forget about whether they graduate college, but get them in, you could you could have that as a, as an advertisement for how effective you've been. So it's it's just unfortunate that these kinds of things uh, just don't seem to have the payoff that uh, many politicians or many activists are willing to accept. Yeah, they're they're not as flashy, um, and and I think that you know they also sort of can't say you know we put this many millions of dollars into it either um, because they tend to be sort of less expensive and and hopefully you know, uh, provided by the private sector as well. Right. But you see, one of the things that has come up a number of times is that some of these programs should be able to qualify for Pell Grants. Mm -hmm. Why should Pell Grants only be for so-called academic programs where people just fail out? Right. Why not have them for non-credit-bearing vocational programs that, and these are programs that aren't run by hustling uh, uh, private for profit. These are programs that are modeled and are by the Manufacturing Institute, the Leisure Industry Institute. These are acceptable programs where credentials are industry accepted mm -hmm. and there is an aggressive attempt to not allow government funding. You know, I, I have in my book examples from uh, people in the third, so-called third way, 
who say, well, if we give funding for this, it's going to discourage people from going on for four-year degrees. They say that explicitly. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, if I wasn't a gun advocate, I'd get one and shoot some of these people. <laughs> they're, uh, <laughs> they're standing in the way of people moving forward. Yeah. Yes, we do need to stop fetishizing college as the as the only pathway um, out of high school, um, you know, particularly. And, and what's interesting, MDRC has done a great study on this of, of young low-income boys in particular who did have the opportunities to do apprenticeships in high school and maybe worked immediately after school. There's great data that they actually go back to college. Um, oh, that's right. And then, and then high, have higher completion rates in college they're far less likely to have non-marital births, far less likely to engage in the criminal justice system. You know, so it's not that it's that it college is never, it's just it's not necessarily the right thing right out of high school. And there are other kinds of opportunities where, where you can get people on a different kind of pathway to success. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Robert Cherry. This has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? You can get episodes of this podcast on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, so with that, I am Naomi Schaefer Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. Robert, thank you very much. Buy the book. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>